Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we have the stories behind the songs as told by their songwriters. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rossner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today's topic is songwriters and their songs. It's very exciting because we've interviewed some amazing songwriters over the years for the NAM Oral History Project, and today we're get, we get to use some of those uh, in telling the stories behind some of these songs we've been listening to our whole lives. I promise you, it's going to be a goodie. <laughs> so let's get off right away with Tony Wine, one of the great songwriters of the late 1960s. In fact, she, um, she wrote a song called Groovy Kind of Love for the Mindbenders in 1965. And some of us might remember the 1988 version that uh, Phil Collins recorded. So we'll hear the story behind that and a couple of other songs that she wrote as well. So let's get started right away with Tony Wine. When we wrote Groovy, uh, Carol was teaching in a high school, a public high school in New York. She was teaching in a public high school, and I was a senior at Music and Art High School. So we would only be able to get together either days that neither one of us had school or after school. And we knew when we were getting together, we only had about three hours of writing time. We also knew that we wanted to write a song with the word groovy in it. Because at that point, we knew that was an up-and-coming word. <laughs> and there was only one song out that had that word in it, and that was uh, Feeling Groovy. You know, Feeling Groovy, Simon, you know, Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. And we wanted to write a song with that word, and we decided we were going to write a love song. So there it was, groovy kind of love. And we did it. We, uh, it came very quickly. It was great. And how did it get to the Mindbenders? Uh, as a writer for Alden, a few years later, Donnie sold Alden Music to Screen Gems Columbia Music, which was part of Columbia Pictures. Being with Screen Gems, they had representatives all over the world. So our rep in London... A gentleman named Jack McGraw. God, I can't believe I remember him. He's great. I loved him. He was a wonderful guy. Jack McGraw got the song, and evidently he felt this would be great for this group called the Mindbenders. Pitched it, and we got it. And next thing we were aware of, it was top 10 in London and then top 10 all over Europe, number one in many of the countries. And I think it took about nine months to be released in America. And we hit all over again. So that was very cool. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just to skip a little ahead, but to, to keep on groovy for a minute. So what was it like when Phil Collins did it? Oh. Were you involved with it before it was released? Not at all. I got a call. I was already living in Tennessee. 
uh, and I got a call from Ira Jaffe, Screen Gems in L.A. And he said, uh, I think we have the next Phil Collins record. Really? <laughs> On what? And he told me, and I just, I flipped. And the next thing that happened was, is I heard it on the radio. The disc jockey, the program director from the station called me and said, I think you want to hear this, but don't say any bad words because I have you live on the air. Because <laughs> he knew that I would just go, oh my God, or wonderful, happy four letter words, you know. So I, I didn't, I was good and it blew me away. I loved it. Uh, Carol and I both loved it. It was it was pretty close to the demo that oh, really? we had made. Yeah, and that was an, on, so an honor and a thrill. Really, it was mm. yeah, it was very very nice. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. that's a great tune. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you, you but you continued to go on and tell me a little bit about some of your other collaborations. Uh well, as I said, Black Pearl with Phil Spector. Uh, just a, a, I've written with a bunch of people, and they've, it's all been great experiences. And I sang a lot of television and radio commercials. Did that for many, many years out of New York. Is there is there a story uh, behind Black Pearl? Another tune I really like. Thank you. Uh, just that Philip. Erwin Levine and I wrote it in my apartment in New York. And uh, it's not a real musical story. I mean, musically, it was a great experience. We, we, we loved writing that song. Philip had a, he always has a great feel and a, just great thoughts. And we, we really rolled on that. It was wonderful. But writing that, uh, I had, I was a sick child at the time. I had tonsillitis and I felt awful. And I could not go past nine o'clock at night. And I said, I'm, I had my own apartment. I was 18 or 19. And I said, I'm throwing you guys out. I really feel awful. Tomorrow is another day. And three hours later, my doorbell rings and it's Phil with two shopping bags filled with, from Gaiety Delicatessen, chicken matzo ball soup, and he made me promise that I would drink every hour on the hour, and I did. That was my good story on that. <laughs> but I felt a lot better, and the next day we finished the song. Boy, you know what? I remember very, very well the day that we got to interview Tony Wine. What a charming lady, very passionate about her career. And uh, even though she didn't talk too much about uh, one of the songs in that last segment, Black Pearl, uh, that was originally recorded in 1969 by Sonny Charles and the Checkmates, I think that's a really important song, very empowering, I think, for the era. And uh, one of the lines in there, uh, alludes to the story, which is about a young woman who's a maid for about eight years and decides to do something different, wants to go back to school and become a secretary. And one of the great lines in there is, Black Pearl, 
precious little girl, let me lift you up where you belong. And I just remember reading a couple of different accounts following the success of that story of how empowering that was for women at the time. So I think that's a really neat touch that uh, Tony gave us. So um, with that, I'm kind of excited about the next story behind the song. What's next? Next up is Waddy Waddell, Werewolf of London. And uh, the song was recorded in 1977 by Warren Zevon. Werewolves came about because Phil Everly called Warren and said, I just saw a movie that you guys need to write a song called Werewolves of London, Werewolf of London. It was this old English movie, you know, a uh, horror movie. And, and the timing of it was extraordinary because I was in England and I literally just got back the next day and I stopped I don't, and I was heading into town. We were all living in Venice at that point. I was heading up into town to go work for Linda on a record. I stopped by Warren's house, uh, my friend Roy's house, Roy Marinell was the third writer on Werewolves, and Roy was a great, great friend and a great songwriter. Um, and I stopped by, and Warren was at Roy's, and he goes, oh, man, I can't believe you're here. This is perfect. I went, what? He goes, Phil called me last night, gave me this title. And I went, oh, really? And I literally just got off the plane from London, and I also literally went to Lee Ho Fook's restaurant. So Warren goes... We need, to, we need to write a song called Werewolves of London. I went, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, okay. And the great thing about it was our friend Roy had been sitting around with this lick for almost two years that we tried to put in a million songs and never found a place for it. And it's the lick, you know. The, da, 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 da. So I, <laughs> I look, I'm looking at Warren and I went, where was London, huh? Okay. And I looked at Roy, I went, eh, sorry about this, but I have to use the proper adjective. Uh, Roy, play that fucking lick. And he started playing the lick, and I just looked at Warren, and I spit out the whole first verse at him. I said, I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand, walking down the streets of Soho in the rain. He's going, yeah, yeah. And I said, Lee Ho Fook, the whole first verse. And, and I went, and it's, it's a, a wolf, so we got to go, ow. And he goes, yeah, that's great, that's great. Keep going. I went, no, I can't keep going. I got to go to work. You do it. You finish it. I got to go. But that's how it started. You know, Roy played the lick, and I just had the, I had the words in my head, you know. And then they brilliantly, the two of them finished it together. Boy, am I glad I asked you that. What yeah. a great story. Yeah. And, and also, and then the funniest thing was, we cut, it was the hardest song in the world to record, too, because it's so simple. And... Every band in town, all the great players that we use all the time, I tried it with every combination of guys. We just couldn't. It just sounded funny. It wasn't, it wasn't what we wanted. Warren and I were going, no, no, it doesn't sound. It's cute. It can't be cute. It's got to be serious. It's got to sound real. And our friend Jorge Calderon, who was with us all the time, said, how about Mick and John from Fleetwood Mac? to play the, the rhythm. We went, oh man, that's a great idea. They're hard, they'll, they, they'll lay it down heavy. So I called Mick, and because uh, Stevie and Lindsay were, were now with Mick and, and John, and they said, oh, you want us to come play with you? We went, yeah. 
He goes, oh, we're honored. I said, you're honored? Is that a yes? Okay, well, get over here. So they came over and we played all night, Warren, myself, John, and Mick. And we just played that song from like, I don't know, six at night till about five in the morning. Even though as we were doing it, as take two went by, Jackson said to me, Why? That was pretty good. You want to hear it? And and I went, uh, and Mick Fleetwood goes, nah, let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Went, oh, okay, let's keep going. We'll keep going. We got up to like take 60, you know. It's now four in the morning, five in the morning. I'm like, Jackson, didn't you say take two was good? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you want to hear it? I said, yeah, yeah, I want to hear it now. So we went in. And at one point during the night, Mick said to me, I said, I think we're getting done. He goes, we're never done, Woody. I went, oh, we're never done? Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so we went in to listen to take two. And I looked at Mick, I went, we're done. That's it, take two is it. <laughs> and that was it. And then finally, you know, we got, we got it down, we got the track, got the guitars on it. And I was on the road with Linda, and Warren calls me, he goes, I've got it. I've got, I've got it. I, what, what? you got what? Because he kept saying, it needs one more line. It needs one more line. I went, what? You got what? Goes, I got the last line. And it was the pina colada line. You know? <laughs> His hair was perfect. I went, oh, man, that's, that's unbelievable. I said, that's it? He goes, that's it. I said, all right, let's add that to the vocal, and we're done, man. We'll finish it. <laughs> and it was great. But it was a hard song to record. Wow. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't behave. It's a werewolf. It wouldn't behave. Boy, Werewolf of London. I just love that song. Ah, woo! I mean, how often do you get to howl in a song? Just, I just love it. And um, I, one of my favorite lines in it, if you'll indulge me, I mean, he's eating Chinese food, he's having a drink at Trader Vic's, and then the next line, um, Warren Zavon says, almost, um, he's a little jealous. After he has the um, drink at Trader Vic's, he says, his hair was perfect. And I just I love the look on his face in the music video when he says that. And then I wanted to say a little bit more about Wadi. Such a great guy. We went to interview him at his home, kind of a little ranch. And it was gated. And we saw a stable where his wife was working with horses when we came in. So we went and did the interview. And he could tell I was an animal lover. So afterwards, he took the time to go outside with us. And I got to meet his horses. And then um, he literally released the hounds. Mm -hmm. And pretty far away from the house, his wife opened the door, and these two great big dogs came running at us. I think they were Scottish deer hounds. And then they started jumping and, and wagging their tails, and they were, it was really a fun experience. I have a picture of one by our car, and it was the size of the car. In fact, I think I had the door open to put something in, and it almost got in the car. It's like, how are we <laughs> going to get this dog out of the car? But um, I'm talking about all this just to show what a great guy Wadi was. Really nice, very funny, just one of those great, you know, unique experiences. We never know what we're gonna what's going to happen when we go to interview someone, and you know, this is one of the special ones. So thank you, Wadi, for letting me meet your dogs and your horses. Absolutely. What I took took away from that is the fact that he had just come back from London when he was writing this song with Warren and, and just had eaten at that Chinese restaurant. And so they fit that in the song. I think that's great. So now I think of him every time I hear that song. Very, very good memories. Well, let's continue on with this podcast of the Music History Project as we talk about the stories behind the songs as told by the songwriters. We had a wonderful opportunity at two different NAMM shows to interview the two songwriters behind 
Forget Me Not, which was a big hit in 1982 by one of the songwriters, Patricia Russian, and the bass player on that song, Freddie Washington. So we're going to have both of them sort of chime in from their interviews about this song that you probably might best know for the 1997 version uh, in the movie Men in Black that was recorded by Will Smith. For those of you a little bit older, like in my generation, you might remember that song being played as Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins were jumping on the trampoline in the 1988 movie Big. So here is the story behind Forget Me Nots. Such a good, good. movie. I loved Big. <laughs> I knew I had a special thing going because I was doing a lot of work with Patricia Russian at that time. And we were writing a lot of stuff together. So I would always bring her ideas and she would bring me ideas and we develop and we'd work on them and that was one of the ideas that I brought her. And well we wrote so many songs together in fact uh, you know Freddie used to when he first came to Los Angeles he stayed with my family he called me and he says okay I need to get out of the Bay Area ask your mother can I sleep on her couch <laughs> 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 so my parents actually they, they had met Freddie and they said well cool you know he can you know he can stay in our extra room and get himself together, and then when he's on his feet, we'll feel like, you know, this is what you do. So we played every day. It was like, that was, we. and I would play bass sometimes, and he would play drums, and he would play keyboard sometimes, and I would play guitar, then he would play guitar, and then I would sing, and then he would sing. So we just had this, like, trying, that we were experimenting with these instruments, and we came up with some of these amazing um feels and grooves just because we were playing with each other. I don't think either of us could have done it alone. It was the act of just being involved with somebody playing music and just being unafraid to just go for something. There's a few different recordings. You know, Will Smith took it for the Men in Black and that became that record became huge and there were some other artists that did it, but that's for me that one was really really big. And you're playing the bass on that. Oh yeah. yeah. What they did was they took they took the uh, they sampled it and they slowed it down, and so they put a, they put another twist on it. So they slowed it they slowed it down, became a different tempo, and the 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 pitch of it and the key of it dropped down a half step. Yeah, and so that's that's me on it as well still. So this was. Uh Freddie Washington and Patricia Russian. Patricia Russian has been collaborating with many people and uh, she also shares her knowledge uh, as an educator uh, uh, at colleges. Yeah, she's an amazing music educator as well. She sort of morphed into that. She still writes, she still performs, but I think her main gig now is just advocacy for music, which is fantastic. And next up is Charles Fox. He wrote over 50 TV theme songs, including The Love Boat, which was a personal favorite back in the day. Uh, I had a little crush on Doc. Uh, the Wild <laughs> World of Sports uh, theme with the Agony of Defeat guy, that poor guy. And uh, the theme song for a very popular show, which ran from 1976 to 1983, Laverne and Shirley. Shamil, Shamazel. Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. So here is Charles Fox with the story behind the theme from Laverne and Shirley. Doing it my way. Whose idea was it to use some Yiddish words at the beginning of Laverne and Shirley? So that actually came 
Tom Miller um, was brought up Milwaukee, and that was a camp song of his, Shlomil Shamazel Hassan Pfeffer Incorporated. Uh, and somehow we got it into the song and we started on the street. It was all, it was all done like, hey, let's have the girls sing this song and let's dance down the street. It was all came up in a, in a moment, you know, they were just doing quickly putting it together, presentation, see if ABC would buy it as, as a series. So people have asked me over the year, what does Shamil Shamazel mean? And uh, I always say, um, well, uh, Shamil is the guy, the, is the waiter who brings you the soup and his thumb is in the soup. That's the Shamil. And the Shamazel is the guy who gets to eat the soup. Okay, that was Charles Fox. And I don't know what was better, his story or Suzanne's lead into that story. That was great. Um, anytime we can get someone to sing on the podcast is always a delight. Um, you know, so in addition to those 50 songs uh, for television themes that Charles wrote, I also wanted to mention that he wrote a big hit record in 1972 for Roberta Flack called Killing Me Softly with his song. Beautiful tune. Um, so that's Charles Fox, whose interview was made possible by our dear friend Ron Manis. So a shout out to him for uh, encouraging Charles to do an interview with us. That yay, was awesome. Ronnie. Yay, yay. Okay, I love this podcast. So the stories behind the songs as told by the songwriters continue here on the Music History Project with interviews from the NAM Oral History Program. And so what is up next? Up next is Tom T. Hall. And uh, he had many hits. Well, my favorite song of his is Harper Valley PTA because it's somebody sticking it to the man. <laughs> uh, he talks about in this um, little segment the song he wrote called I Love. And just to give you a little preview, um, I'm just going to say, Hell's Bells, Tom. Little Ducks? <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what Suzanne is referring to, you will hear in the story, uh, was when Farron Young first heard this recording. And Farron Young, I just wanted to say a quick note about, he was a very popular singer, uh, born in 1932, he passed away in 96, and he, his first big hit was written by a very young guy that nobody knew. Uh, the song was called Hello Walls, and it was basically about being all alone after being dumped and just looking at these four, four walls around him. And people teased him all the time. Every time they went to the coffee shop and saw this young songwriter, uh, people teased him. What a dumb song. It became a big hit, but... Uh, Little Willie Nelson was not deterred. <laughs> Ooh, good. So here is the story behind I Love Tom T. Hall. That's one of my favorite stories. You know, uh, Shakespeare said that brevity is the art of wit, you know. And I've, I've always uh, put great stock in brevity, although I'm not good at it conversationally, as you're well aware. But I uh, wrote uh, I Love in five minutes because a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist said, you know, you got to get up every morning and write down all your pet peeves. And about the second time you do it, they just look so trivial on everything that you start laughing at yourself, you know. Just, so I guess it's just a mental exercise. So I tried it a couple of mornings. I write down. I don't, like I don't like that, and this bothers me, and so forth and so on, and I'll throw that away. So I got up the third morning, and I said, 
That's a negative exercise anyway. I'm going to write the reverse of that. I'm just going to write down a little list of all the things I love. Well, I started writing it down and I started humming it. I love little baby ducks. So I wrote the song in five minutes. I took it down to Jerry Kennedy. And uh, I'd been out on the road for a couple of weeks and I had to go in the studio and we need one more song for this album or something. I said, well, I got this little song called I Love. We'll record that. So Pig was sitting there, and he took it off on the piano. Now, I recorded, I wrote this song in five minutes. I recorded it in one take because I thought I was coming back later to do the real track. I recorded it in one take. It's two minutes long, and it sold a million records. So go figure. You know, I mean, I've got uh, probably uh, 10 minutes invested in this whole song. Performance, writing, and everything. You know what I mean? So, I say that's a good case for brevity. And when I sang it, I told Jerry, I said, I've been on the road and I'm kind of scratchy and everything, so I'll put it down and then I'll come back and do the vocal. So I went out and went off someplace and and I was coming through the airport, and I ran into Farron Young, who had a very colorful vocabulary. He said, damn, Tom T., what the hell are you done now? I said, gee, I don't know. Tell me about it. He said, I heard your new record on the radio. Hell's bells, baby ducks. And I thought, what the hell is Farron talking about? I thought, no. I said, would you hear that? He said, I heard it on the radio coming out to the airport. I said, no, I don't think so because I haven't even, you know, I haven't even put my vocal on it yet, you know. And sure enough, I got back to the office and they said, Mercury released I Love, you know. I said, holy mackerel, I'm going to get a copy of it because I, I couldn't even talk the day I recorded it, let alone sing. And, uh, of course, I hear it and Candy's put all these strings on it and, and, uh, I wasn't famous as a vocalist anyway, but, uh, and it was in a very manageable, easy, low-fee little key. So uh, that's my statement to brevity there, you know, don't try too hard. It might turn out all right anyway. So this was Tom T. Hall, and next up is Allie Willis, and both of you, Suzanne and Dan, have interviewed her, and I know she's especially dear to your heart, Suzanne. Ah, she is. She is. Very, very special person. We absolutely love her. I'm going to um, take a minute now to tell you to go watch her web clip. As a reminder, nam.org. Scroll down to library and oral history interviews. Allie Willis. Absolutely. Wonderful lady. So she's going to be talking about one of many songs that she wrote during her amazing career as a songwriter uh, when she collaborated with the folks at Earth, Wind & Fire to give us this 1978 hit. Does anybody know what it is yet? Okay, I'll give you another hint. It was also a big hit in 2007 for Kurt Franklin. So let's hear the story behind... Do you remember the first day of September? <laughs> Yow. September 21st. First of all, at the time, the date had no special significance other than it sang better than any other of the dates in September. Because we went through, you know, do you remember? 
the first day of the second day. You know, we went all the way through. Um, Maurice felt very strongly that the 21st was um, just felt the most in the pocket. Um, I found out about two months ago. That song came out in 1978. We are now in 2018. I found out from Maurice's wife that that was the day their son was supposed to be born. So that was the day their son was supposed to be born. Uh, so it actually had great significance, but I never knew it. Um, always in September, first of all, one of the only two singles that was ever released off my Child Star album was called What Kind of Shoes Does September Wear? That she ran away so fast, blah, blah, blah. So September has always had great relevance uh, to me. So September 1st, since 1974, which is when Child Star came out, I have had friends leave me messages on my phone singing, what kind of shoes does September wear? So then in 1978, at the end of the year when September came out, starting in 1979, I still get, what kind of shoes does September wear? But I started getting, you know, body, I say, do you remember? So I have been serenaded for decades and decades on the 1st of September. And then starting 1979, on the 21st of September, where they just would sing September. Social media comes along, and all of a sudden, starting on the 1st of September, going to September 30th, every day I am getting, you know, karaoke versions of it and people posting the original version at, like crazy. So the whole month of September feels like a big birthday to me. But as the years went by, the bombardment that started happening on the 21st of September, uh, last two years ago, I decided, okay, now that I love performing again, and my shows I approach as a party host, not, um, not like a singer-songwriter. I do all the songs as sing-alongs. You know the songs. Why do I have to keep my voice in shape, you know? I spoke way too much grass for that. So the songs are all done as sing-alongs. I auction off all like crazy stuff from the house. Um, I'm constantly throwing candy out to the audience. I have them show, so sugared up by the time they leave. They're like nuts. So these shows are very funny. So I realized September 21st, I'm always gonna perform. So that became a ritual for me. And again, every year, the response, the number of, I love September, I'm gonna sing you September, whatever it is, that's increased. This year, I realized, I'm gonna do an entire September show. So it's every bad version of September I've collected. It's every animal version you cannot believe. The number of birds that sing September, the number of people that dress the dog up and they're dancing to September, it's unbelievable. So I threw an entire September show, which was great. And the whole month I'm getting gifts, I'm getting, you know, everything. But then something this year that I was never aware of was happening, but just broke loose this year. There were September 21st parties 
all around the world, all around the world, over a thousand that I know of. And then the freakiest thing of all happened. This was only three weeks ago now. After 40 years, September, by Earth, Wind, and Fire, leapt back onto the Billboard charts and knocked Eminem out of the number one spot on the hip-hop charts. And it was on the hip-hop charts for all of September and number one now about three weeks ago. Okay, I'm still laughing at that intro of... Yow. That was a great yow, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. And it reminds me of this fantastic interview we had with another member of Earth, Wind & Fire, Larry Dunn, who told us the story behind the yow, made very famous, of course, by Maurice White. Um, and that was because Maurice was looking for some sort of segue and he was a singer. And so he couldn't do like a drum fill or something like that. So he decided to do the yow. And so they all uh, thought that it was inspired by somebody who stepped on his foot earlier that day. But we're not really sure about that. So anyway, that was Ali Willis talking about September. So let's move on to our next songwriter who tells us the story behind one of his big hits. I once got teased that there was no podcast that went by that I didn't mention Elvis. And I don't think that's true. I think there must be at least three out of the last 115 that we've done that I haven't mentioned Elvis. But we're going to mention Elvis today because it's the stories behind the songs. And we got to interview the two great songwriters behind many hits, not just for Elvis, but a lot of different artists. And that's Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And uh, this particular segment is Mike specifically talking about um, Jailhouse Rock, which was a number one hit for Elvis in 1957. By the way, these two guys were in college together and they loved rhythm and blues songs of the early 50s. And so they wrote a song specifically for one of their favorite singers who at the time was pretty well unknown. Her name was Big Mama Thornton. And she recorded their song called Hound Dog, which, of course, Elvis later took as well. But if you listen to the original, and I always encourage people to do this, because at the very end of Big Mama's version of Hound Dog, there are studio musicians howling like dogs. And two of them are Lieber and Stoller. The songwriters are actually part of that gang of dogs you hear. Um, but uh, we lost Jerry in 2011, uh, but Mike is still going strong at 89 years old. I just saw him the other day on the internet. He was uh, accepting an award for all of his advocacy and music. What an amazing guy. Um, but they also wrote a bunch of hit songs for the coasters, including Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back, um, and um, Wilbert Harrison's big hit, um, I'm Going to Kansas City. Great tune. Um, and for Elvis, those guys wrote a bunch of big hits, including Loving You, Don't, and King Creole, along with this song. So let's hear the story behind Jailhouse Rock. Here's Mike Stoller. Actually, Jerry was hired to play the piano player in the movie. And I told them that I was not the piano player. I said, he is the piano player. And they said, we know, but you look like one. <laughs> So the day, the day that Jerry was supposed to show up, uh, he had an impacted wisdom tooth. He said, I can't go, you go. I said, well, they, they, he said, they won't know the difference. 
So I went. He said, oh, yes, they will. Yes, they will. Uh, well, said, they made me take my beard off. They said it was a scene stealer. So I played the piano player in the film Jailhouse Rock. Along, I was part of the band. Uh, in which he played anyway at an, early, an earlier incarnation. Uh, with, uh, you know, uh, DJ Fontana and uh, Scotty Moore and Bill, the late Bill Black on upright bass. So we were the, the guys who played in the film. So I got to know Elvis a little bit more than just in the recording studio. Because between filming and so on, it was a lot of hurry up and wait, and we'd hang out and whatever. And one day he asked me to come up to the hotel with, with the band and the entourage, uh, Georgie Klein and Lamar Fike and the, the, the cousins, Red and whatever his name was. Uh, and he had a they had taken over the whole top floor of the Beverly Wilshire. And they had a pool table in, in a large room. And so we, he said, you want to shoot some pool? I said, sure. So we're shooting pool, and I'm taking careful aim at one particular ball. I think it was the nine ball. And I looked up. And I was alone. <laughs> and then I wondered where everybody went. And then Elvis came in and he said, Mike, I feel real bad. Uh, but I'm afraid you're going to have to go. The colonel came in and he don't like that you're here. So I said, okay, okay. You know. It was a situation where the colonel wanted especially songwriters, even though we had written many songs for him by then. He didn't want anybody to get close to him for fear that he might fall in love with the song and record it even before they got hold of the publishing rights. We made sure we included the pool table part of that story. <laughs> uh, very interesting to everybody. Yes, and very insightful, for sure. And up next, let, let me give you a little hint, see if you can guess. D does that ring a bell? <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> no, I think that, Suzanne, if you had started off with cuckoo and then hit the cowbell, I think that might have been a, more of a clue. Oh, l let me do it again. Okay. Cuckoo. <laughs> I'm loving this podcast. Okay, if you haven't got it by now, that is reference to the Chambers Brothers' big psychedelic soul song in 1967 called Time Has Come Today. In our band house one evening, I was, I was downstairs in the dining room area, and I had an acoustic guitar I was playing. And that music just stuck in my head. I kept playing it over and over and over. I didn't have lyrics. And Joe was upstairs in his room writing and he heard me playing downstairs and he came to the top of the stairs. He said, what's that you're playing? I says, I don't know. It just came to me now and I'm just 
playing it. He says, do you have lyrics for it? I said, no, it just came to me right now. He says, well, I was up in my room writing, and while I'm writing, the music seemed to fit with what I'm writing. I said, well, let's go down in the studio and see what's going on. So we went down, uh, we had a basement there, so we had a rehearsal studio there. We went down in the basement, and the lyrics that he was writing and the music that I was playing seemed to be a couple. And that's where Time Has Come Today got started right there. But then we only had about a two and a half, three minute song like there. But then one night I was laying in my bedroom and this a thought came to me and says, Wow, we should we should turn this into a psychedelic we should make this song our contribution to psychedelic music. But we need to extend it. But then I thought of some many, many years ago when I was a kid there was uh, there was a song I heard uh, there was a record I heard on the radio. It was something about Depp coming to get some guy, and he was screaming and hollering, and there was a lot of screaming, and used to scare the living daylights out of me. And I remember that I thought that would be that would work well in this song, you know, all the screaming and all the hollering. Cause so I told my brothers, I, I went and knocked on air. I said, I got an idea. So we went down in the studio. We was all down there all night making that a longer song. And my brother George, he thought it was silly and stupid. He says <laughs> he didn't like it at all because all of the carrying on, all the screaming and stuff like that. And like we uh, we worked that out and we got that established that we was going to do it this way, and we started performing it in that manner, and it 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 scared people. I, I remember seeing people grabbing their heads and running straight out the door. It was just too much going on. <laughs> and our brother George, he was, he says, "Are we gonna? We're not gonna play that song tonight, are we?" <laughs> yeah, we're gonna sing it every night. We're gonna play it every night. <laughs> but there's something about that song, like I can't remember the number of times we performed that song, but it's never been the same twice. It's never, ever been the same twice. It's, it's something different every time. And right to this day, I, I put that record on right now, and I listen to it, and I hear something that I, I didn't hear before. So, so fun to meet the Chambers brothers and get to interview them. Um, I got to interview Joe and Willie, and Dan also got to interview... Lester. Oh, wonderful guys. So much fun. Um, spiritual. And just spending time with them, it was like meditating. And as an extra bonus, their manager invited us to... Willie's 80th birthday party hmm. and we got to go to this party in this kind of divish club that was in a strip mall and they played for us and we got to hear them play um, Time amongst other songs and it was like a throwback to an era that I'm a little too young to have experienced in person so just watching this performance was absolutely magical hmm. a very very special 
special thing. And then I'm going to um, invite you again to go back to the oral history collection and look up Willie's interview and just see what he's wearing. <laughs> he is decked head to foot in leather and a bedazzled cap, and he was about to turn 80, and he looked amazing. Absolutely. And such a wonderful time. So, again, a very, very special uh, thing that we got to be a part of. No doubt. And those guys, as, as Susanna said, so charming, so down to earth. And at that little dive on uh, Willie's birthday, as soon as Joe opened his mouth, I mean, what a distinctive voice he has. I really got goose pimples. I just could not yeah, believe shivers. there he is. That's the guy with that voice I've been hearing my whole life. I mean, it was just really, really special. And a little shout out to Quest Love, um, the drummer for The Roots, who took the time to uh, unearth what has become the documentary for Summer of Soul, which was uh, based on the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival that sort of got um, buried underneath all of the hoopla of Woodstock. But this concert was absolutely amazing. It mostly had African-American performers, and it did include the Chambers Brothers. So that was really, really a special thing to uh, see the rare footage of them um, and in all their glory way back in the day. So that was really special. Yeah, that film is amazing. It's, I really love that one. And it's, uh, you can watch it anytime and uh, make sure you do. Yeah, well said, Alex. Well, this has been great, you guys. I really have enjoyed this podcast. The stories behind the songs is told by the songwriters on the Music History Project. We will be back before you know it with another one very similar to this. One might even call it part two to this episode. So until then, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Yow. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.